of your pew Bibles, if you'd like. We are reading 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's covenant with David. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people from is my people of Israel from Egypt. To this day, I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, I did not speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince of my people of Israel. Uh, I had been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and, disturb, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your, all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. You shall come from, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who, was, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with the vision Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also to your servants, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard in our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and nation and its gods. 
and you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, become their, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to be your, to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you and bless May it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall be the house of your servant. And with your blessing, the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. I'll meet you there. So kids are heading out. Let me uh, lead us in prayer as we look at the passage. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who speaks. You've revealed yourself not only in your son, the word made flesh, but also in your written word. And uh, we pray that as we think about this passage, that it would uh, instruct us, it would help us, it would direct us, it would encourage us, it would correct us. Wherever we are in our journey of faith, may this be a fruitful and helpful time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Walter Kaiser was a professor at gordon Conwell Seminary in Boston, where uh, Tara and I attended. Uh, uh, he then became the seminary president there, and while I never actually had a class with him, I heard him speak numerous times, and I always admired him as a as a man of uh, great scholarship, his godly example, as well as his humor. Some of you Delco folks might put all that down to the fact that he was born in Falcroft uh, in Delaware County, but I couldn't possibly comment on that. Anyway, Kaiser is 88 now. He actually got remarried at the age of 84 after his first wife died. He now lives on a farm in Wisconsin, and his area of study and expertise has always been the Old Testament. He's fond of saying that many have urged him over the years to study the New Testament more, thinking that he focused too much on the Old Testament. They would even buy him books on the New Testament. He said, I've even got now a whole shelf of New Testament books. Once he was asked uh, after that later how much he liked the New Testament, he replied, I like it. Reminds me of the Old Testament. <laughs> All of that is to say is that that when an Old Testament scholar, expert like Walter Kaiser, says that there are four main mountain peak passages in the Old Testament that are key to understanding not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, then it's probably worth listening to what he says. And here are his four. Genesis 3, verse 15, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and fourthly, our passage today, 2 Samuel 7. So if you're visiting today, you've actually picked a fairly decent Sunday to come because we're looking at a passage that is crucial to understanding who is God and what is God's plan for history and humanity. Let me summarize what we're going to look at today this way. 
that the grammar of the gospel is that grace precedes gratitude. The grammar of the gospel is that grace precedes gratitude. So that in this passage, we're going to see there's things that God does and there's that which David does in response to what God does. And we'll, as uh, we look at that, we'll see there's a pattern there actually for our lives too. We're going to look at the chapter in three parts. First of all, the bright idea. Secondly, the divine flip. Thirdly, the seated servant. The grammar of the gospel is that grace precedes gratitude. So first, the bright idea. At this point, King David is now finally established as the king of Israel. He hasn't had much time up to this point to sit back and reflect. He's had to fight off Israel's enemies. He's had to establish Jerusalem as the capital for Judah and for Israel. He's had to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the middle of nowhere to Jerusalem. But now the, the, sta- the kingdom is stable. And so as we read these opening verses, we see in the midst of that stability, David has a bright idea. Verses 1 to 3. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So you can just imagine one night after dinner, David's sitting out on his back deck. He's chatting with Nathan the prophet as they enjoy a nightcap together. And as they're relaxing, David looks out over the city of Jerusalem and his eye catches the tabernacle just outside the palace. The tabernacle was the tent that God had told Israel to construct and in which the Ark of the Covenant was to be kept so that God's presence could always dwell with his people. However, by this stage, the tabernacle's a few hundred years old. It's not looking quite as snippy and dapper as it had when it was first built. And so David says to Nathan, you know, there's something wrong when the the Lord's servant lives among cedar while the sign of the Lord's presence sits amongst curtain. I live in this ridiculously nice house and God is living in a dingy old tent. I, I think we should do something about that. Well, what's a prophet to say to a king when he gets such a proposal? Nathan's actually in a slightly different position to most of the prophets that we encounter in the Old Testament. Best-known prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah were fairly independent of the kings that they related to. And so, in many ways, God called them to a role where they would have to stand up to the king, confront the king. But like other ancient Near Eastern societies, Israel also had prophets who were on the king's staff to provide the king with the guidance that he needed. Well, the challenge, of, of course, is that once you're on the payroll, it's hard to bite the hand that feeds you, especially when it may not merely bite you back, but order your execution. A couple of weeks, when we get to the account of David's adultery with Bathsheba, we'll see that Nathan isn't afraid to stand up to the king. But on this occasion, he's pretty much like any pastor when a wealthy person comes wanting to make a large donation to the capital campaign, Nathan essentially replies, go and do what is on your heart for the Lord is surely with you in this. So that Nathan becomes like Nike Nathan here as he tells the king, just do it. Well, this all seems like a bright idea to David and David surely thought that God was gonna be pleased with his proposal. However, as, as Eugene Peterson comments, with this suggestion, David was dangerously close to crossing over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. 
I mean, from David's perspective, he's riding a crest of popularity. He's decisively de defeated Israel's enemies, united God's people, and now he's heady with success. He's now in a position, he thinks, to, to do God a favor. You know, implicit in the comparison that David makes in verse 2 between his house of cedar and God's tent is the judgment that David is now housed better than, than God is that David's achieved a higher standard of living than God, and that from David's position of strength now, well, he's able to do something significant for God. So that without intervention, David is about to cross a line from being full of God to full of himself as he proposes his bright idea. Which brings us to the divine flip. Look at verses 4 to 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You know, you wonder if Nathan went to bed that night, you know, not thinking much about the conversation he'd had with David, or perhaps he spent the night tossing and turning with this uncomfortable feeling that he'd perhaps been a wee bit hasty in his enthusiastic yes to the king. Regardless of how he felt, it's clear that God taps Nathan on the shoulder that night and says words to the effect of, uh, excuse me, Nathan, so, so this house, the idea is that it's for me to live in, right? I think it might have been a good idea to maybe have consulted me about this. You know, I'm not talking about how many bathrooms or whether we have underfloor heating. I mean the whole idea of the house, the whole idea. And God then gives Nathan three reasons why he's not so hot on the house idea. First of all, we might, it might, we might call the first objection the Emmanuel Principle. I remember the hymn that we often sing in Advent every year, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel means God with us. It's used in the Old Testament as a prophetic name for the Lord Jesus. When he comes to take on human flesh and live amongst us, God with us. But even before Jesus, God had been the Emmanuel God. So God tells Nathan, you know, I, you know, I really don't care that much for houses. I, I like to be on the move so I can be with my people where they are. If my people are in tents, I want to be in a tent too. Where my people are wandering or homeless or suffering, I want to be among them. I'm the kind of God who lives with my people. When they wander, I wander. I don't want a temple, at least not yet. I need to make a secure place for my people to rest, and then I'll rest. I wonder if you can see the amazingly gracious condescension, the condescension of God here. You know, what, what we see here perhaps challenges the preconceptions that some of us have about God. We've always thought of God as aloof, distant, disconnected, uninterested. But the God of the Bible says, I'm the God who's not big on getting a house because I want to be on the move so I can always be with my people. God says, I'm not ashamed to say I live in a tent because I always want to be with my people wherever they are. It's also possible that some of us might find it a little bit troubling that God is the God who's constantly on, our move, on the move, because some of us might prefer to have, be able to you know, tie God down to keep him under control. We'd prefer a God who's, 
who's utterly predictable, someone that you can find on a certain place, on a certain day to make an appointment with, should you need to. We don't really want a God who's on the loose. But God says, I'm the God who's on the loose. I'm the God who's on the move. That's God's first objection to the building project, the Emmanuel Principle. Second objection, briefly, is, is the need principle, which is, frankly, that God doesn't need anything from us. God didn't particularly need a physical residence. And so he pokes a little bit of fun at David as he tells Nathan to tell the king, you know, funny, I don't remember ever complaining to any of the Israel's leaders in the past that they haven't built me a house. And in particular, I really wanted a house of cedar. I don't remember that. David, do you think I'm worried about my accommodations down here? To be honest, cedar doesn't really particularly impress me. I've got streets of gold up here, you know. And God says in Psalm 50, you know, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. In other words, David, if I needed a nicer place to live, I wouldn't come to you to ask for funding. But the third and the most important objection is this. It's the grace principle. Because David has things completely backwards here. So God's going to flip David's script. Listen as I read verses 8 to 10. And as I listen, take note of who the subject of these sentences is, who the primary actor is as I read it. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. No prizes for seeing who the subject of the sentence is. It's God all the way through. Everything starts with God and his gracious actions on our part. It was God who took, Abraham, who took David from being a shepherd, who protected him from his enemies. It was God who would make for David a great name and give Israel rest from all their enemies. So that the message that Nathan would deliver to David is dominated by a recital of what God has done, what God was doing, and what God will do. God's actually the first person subject of 23 verbs in this message, and it's those verbs that carry all the action. And what's important for us to see is that what's true of David is also, of course, true for us. God's the subject of the sentences of our lives as well, as he demonstrates grace upon grace upon grace to us. David needs to learn from the grace principle that David isn't in the driver's seat. God is. As I like to remind us frequently here, when any of us dust our lives for God's fingerprints, we discover that they're everywhere, absolutely everywhere, because God is the subject of the sentences of our lives. But the crucial part of the grace principle here comes in verse 11. Moreover, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. God completely flips the script. David's concerned about God's house. He wants to build God a house. And God says, no, I won't have that. He says, in this relationship, I'm the giver. You're the receiver. So I I know you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And the thing is here that God uses a play on the word house here. 
Because the Hebrew word for house can mean, of course, a house made from brick and stone, but it also can mean a house made of people, a household. And David, God uses the use of this double meaning as he flips David's plan. He says, David, I'm going to build you a house that's a dynasty, a name that will survive generation after generation after generation. It's this display of immense grace on God's part. David says, I want to build something for God. And God says, no, that's not the way this relationship works. I'm going to build something for you. And at the heart of this dynasty, this dynasty house God was going to build was a covenant that God was making with David and his descendants. The language of covenant doesn't actually appear in this chapter, but later in chapter 23, David rehearses what happens in chapter 7, refers to it as an everlasting covenant. And I want us to note that there are three things here that demonstrate the unbreakable nature of this covenant, this promise that God makes to David and subsequently to all the, all the uh, generations that would come after him. First of all, death can't break this promise or covenant, verses 12 to 13. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." God says to David, David, you're going to die, but after you will come your offspring. Actually, David, your son shall build me a physical house, but we don't need to worry about that right now. But the throne of his kingdom will endure death and will go on forever. Death can't break this commitment. Secondly, sin can't break this commitment. Verses 14 to 15, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. This covenant, God talks about this relationship in terms of adopting David's successor into a father-son relationship. And that's interesting because that's a relationship that allows for conflict in the relationship that isn't terminal or fatal. John Goldengay, one commentator, illustrates this by commenting on the difference between motherhood and marriage. You can stop being a wife through divorce, but you can never stop being a mother. No matter what a son or daughter does, the mother never stops being their mother. God here envisages the possibility of chastising his son, and in God, indeed God would do a lot of chastising in relation to David, his son Solomon, their successors over the next 400 years. But when you adopt someone as your son in God's book, he becomes a real son, just as if he was born to you. And you can never unson your son in the way that you can divorce your spouse. Admittedly, now in our culture, there are occasions when birth mothers, adoptive parents do so, it's just God can't imagine ever doing that, even when those sons seriously stray in sin. So death can't break God's commitment to his covenant. Sin can't do it either. And 30, neither can time. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God says it twice just to make it abundantly clear. He's not bluffing. David, he says, your throne and your kingdom will be established forever. 
And the initial fulfillment of this prophecy would, of course, be David's own biological son, Solomon. Solomon's reign was marked with rest from enemies, a time of prosperity. So in many ways, he would exemplify the promise. And yet Solomon would also do patently stupid things, like having 700 wives and worshiping idols. But remember, sin can't interrupt God's commitment to his covenant. So God still keeps his promise and doesn't take the kingdom away from Solomon. But it's clear Solomon is not the forever king God has promised, and neither are any of Solomon's sons who sin so badly that the nation descends into civil war. As you read on in the Old Testament, things just go from bad to worse, so that it almost seems like you know, God does cast off David's successors, given that by the year of 587 BC, no Davidic king ever sat on the throne in Jerusalem again. Maybe sin and time could actually interrupt God's commitment to the covenant. But they couldn't, and they didn't, because God never breaks his promises. Here's why Walter Kaiser sees this chapter as one of the four mountain peaks in the Old Testament. The prophecy given to David here of a forever kingdom was ultimately pointing to the one who is king right now, the forever king, Jesus himself. Because Jesus was the descendant of David, whose kingdom would last forever. He was the descendant who would establish the true temple, not a building constructed with human hands, but the temple, he said, of his own body. And after his ascension, Jesus then would send his spirit to make us, his people, the temple of God. So that in other words, what's the house of God? The people of God are the house of God. That's why in the past we reworked that well-known children's rhyme. You know the one? Here's the church, here's the steeple. Well, ours goes, here's the church building, here's the steeple, open the door, and here's the church. doesn't kind of roll off the tongue like the original, but it's, it's better because it's right. We're the church, we're the house of God, we're the temple. So that as much as any of us love this building, this is not the house of God. We're the house of God. Like Solomon, Jesus would not need to be disciplined with the stripes of men. Indeed, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, he actually would be bruised for our iniquity. He would be, by his wounds and his stripes, we would be healed. It's a prophecy of what would happen on the cross where Jesus died, took the penalty for our sin, our rebellion, and then three days later, rises again from death to live forever, proving that God's commitment to the covenant could not be defeated or broken by death, or by sin, our sin, or by time. So that through his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his giving of the Spirit, Jesus, the true Son of David, would make us to be the house of God and confirm the Emmanuel principle, God's real presence with his people forever. He's with us all the time. It was a divine flip beyond David's wildest imagination. And that brings us thirdly and briefly to the, the seated servant. God has gently but firmly given Nathan the definitive seminar on houses. And so next morning, David goes back to, Nathan goes back to David and withdraws the building permit. David, it's not about the house that you want to build. It's about the house that God is going to build for you. It's all about him and it's about his grace to you. So what does David do with that? Verse 18. Then King David went in 
and sat before the Lord and said. And what follows, as we heard in the reading that Mary Ellen read for us, is a prayer of sheer gratitude in response to God's grace. There's no arguments. There's no self-justification. Just gratitude, because David gets the grammar of the gospel. David's response is a good reminder to us that all religions are not the same. Because religion in general operates on the principle, I obey, I behave myself, I do what is right, and then God will accept me. But Christianity flips that upside down to say, no, I'm accepted through Christ, not because of what I've done, not because of my performance. I'm accepted because of Christ, and therefore, I obey because I want to obey because of what he's done. Do you see that it's completely different? You can't earn God's acceptance. You don't earn your way to heaven. It's a gift of grace that you receive, and as David shows us here, we receive with gratitude. We don't have time to go through David's prayer, but in a way, the overall content of the prayer is previewed by this verse 18. Having heard Nathan's message, David hastens to the tent, the tent that he'd wanted to replace, and he sits before the Lord there. And it's striking that David sits, because in the Old Testament, you did not sit to worship. They had no chairs in the temple. In worship, you either stood to praise or pray, or you fell prostrate on the ground before God. So why is David sitting on this occasion? I think there are two possible reasons. First of all, David is simply in shock. I mean, he had every right to be overwhelmed by what he had just heard from the Lord. So he goes on to say in the prayer, he acknowledges there was, there was nothing in him that could have made God make this commitment. There was no rational basis for what the Lord had done for him so far. There was no rational basis for what the Lord was now promising him. Nothing, no basis other than a basis of sheer grace. But secondly, by sitting before the Lord, David was, I think, renouncing royal initiative, abdicating kingly authority, getting himself out of the driver's seat and placing himself humbly before the true king. David knows he's a servant. He uses that term 10 times in the prayer to refer to himself, the seated servant. Well, in closing, as we're celebrating our graduates today, let me conclude with three brief applications, which I think actually are relevant for all of us today, but hopefully particularly for those of you who are graduating as you move on to the next chapter of your lives. So three grace and gratitude guidelines for graduates. How about that for alliteration? First of all, the giving guideline. Now, this is going to burst some of our bubbles. I'm, I apologize in advance, but... Just like God didn't need David, I've got news for you, God doesn't need any of you either. He doesn't need us. He never has and he never will. For anything, ever. Everything that comes from God is his grace so that God isn't now nor is he ever looking for helpers to assist him to save the world, whether physically or spiritually. But here's the thing, at the same time, we should still want to give back to God out of gratitude for his grace upon grace upon grace to us so that we have to balance the truth that God doesn't need us with the truth that God still wants us to be generous, abundantly generous to others with our money, with our time, with our lives. So let's be people who give. Secondly, the disappointment guideline. David here has a dream to do something for God, and God clearly says no. 
And all of us know something of that experience. The door you thought was open slams in your face. And unlike David, you don't have a Nathan to explain to you why. But here's what you can know. God always has reasons for our disappointments. God knows our hearts better than we do. He knows that definite, certain success in our lives would actually make us more full of our own pride than full of gratitude, more full of ourselves and full of God. So he actually lets us fall on our faces because he knows it's far more dangerous for us to be swollen with pride than it is for us to suffer the difficult adversities of life and come out the other side better for them. So that when God weakens us or humbles us in our disappointments, it's never easy. But for those who are able to trust him and his goodness, it's always for our good. Once we accept disappointment as a tool that God can use, we actually find within that a strength to endure, knowing that God is our ultimate heavenly father who knows us better than we know ourselves, who cares more about our well-being even than we do. That's the disappointment guideline. And then thirdly and lastly, there's the kingdom guideline. You know, those of us who would call ourselves Christians sometimes We'll talk about our responsibility to build God's kingdom, to further God's kingdom, to establish God's kingdom. But if you read through the Gospels, Jesus actually never uses that kind of language with relationship to the kingdom. In the Gospels, the only thing that we can do in relation to the kingdom is wait for it, see it, enter it, seek it, receive it, inherit it, and declare that it's come. And in a culture like ours, that's a rather unpopular point to make because we all want to believe we're the ones who make the difference. We're uncomfortable with the grammar of the gospel that says the gospel's all about what God has done for us and not about what we might try to do for God. As I've said, gratitude to God's grace is not inactive. It's going to stir up an active response of service, of gratitude. But the most fundamental question that any of us are faced as we read 2 Samuel 7 is this. Are you part of that eternal kingdom? Are you part of God's house? Because what David, God told David here is true for all of us, that whether you're a high school graduate or you're so old you can't even remember that you graduated from high school, or maybe your graduation is still ahead of you. Whoever we are, our kingdoms are going to fail, and our endeavors and our ambitions are going to fall flat, and even our families aren't going to last forever, because Jesus is the only one who lasts forever. And the greatest privilege of any of our lives is to ask God to make us part of his kingdom, not because he needs us, but because we long that he might use us for eternal value. That as we respond to his grace with gratitude, God takes our minuscule lives and he makes them into things that are beautiful and precious and everlasting. But that kind of greatness only begins with humility. David teaches that if you desire greatness for yourself, God is going to oppose you. But if you desire God to be great, your life will have eternal value and extraordinary power. But it all begins with a grammar lesson. It all begins with gospel grammar that God's grace precedes our gratitude. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are always the initiator. You are always the uh, one who begins, the start, who starts, the one in the driving seat, the one who pours grace upon grace upon grace into each of our lives, the one who doesn't need us because you are totally sufficient in and of yourself, but the one who so condescends to us that you long to be with us all the time and to see a response of gratitude in our lives to your grace which makes a difference in us and makes a difference in the lives of those around us. May we be grateful people for all that you have done for us and all you will do for us and for your promises to us through Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen.